Welcome, I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six-Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh or I get to hang around the virtual Six-Gun Justice podcast corral, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is storyteller Scott Parker. Based out of his hometown, Houston, Texas, Scott writes westerns that draw their inspiration from classic TV shows like Maverick, The Wild Wild West, and The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., as well as authors such as James Reisner and Louis L'Amour. Also a writer of Atmospheric Mysteries, Scott has been a featured columnist for the Do Some Damage website for over a decade, and he's been blogging on his own website, scottdennisparker.com, since before blogging was cool. Among his many novels, his three-book Western series featuring railroad detective Calvin Carter is his most recent, and there are new Westerns on the horizon. Hello, friend. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much, Paul, for having me. I am very excited to be here and to talk to you today. You have clearly pursued writing in genres that you love to read. What is it about Westerns and mysteries that attracts you? I am a degreed historian, so history has always been a love of mine. As far back as those Justice Society comic books from the 70s, when they would have all those World War II stories, I really got into World War II, which is largely probably a result of why I began to write historical mysteries set here in Houston, Texas around 1940. At the same time, the Old West is one of those time periods that so many people enjoy to research, read about, and watch innumerable movies and TV shows. So my history self is pretty much driving many of the things that I write, including Westerns and Mysteries. Did you grow up watching those classic Western shows like Maverick and Have Gun Will Travel? Yes and no. What I watched as a kid was the Wild Wild West. That was what I gravitated towards as a young man in the late 70s and into the early 80s. I liked it for the reasons it is unique. It is the James Bond on horseback story. It is the steampunk before I even knew what that term steampunk meant. It was the gadgets and just taking the Western tropes and laying over it a James Bond facade and, of course, a superhero facade and then a good partnership between uh, Artemis Gordon and Jim West. As I've grown up, though, I began to seek out and find those classic TV shows. In fact, MeTV on Saturday afternoons is all Westerns all day. And I began to watch Have Gun, Will Travel. And I always enjoyed watching Maverick. Even back in the day, it was not as regular here in Houston as the Wild Wild West was because that was always on Saturdays at four. But one of my favorite movies has been the Maverick live action film with Mel Gibson, Jodie Foster, and James Garner. I like how they wove in the history of the TV show into that movie. I will have to disagree with you about the movie. I felt it went a little bit over the top. Maverick is humorous, but the movie was slapstick in parts. And so for me, it didn't really work well. But the whole idea of Maverick being a distinctly different show than other Westerns has always struck me as why that show was so successful. I agree. One of my favorite episodes, One Night in Tampico, where he goes down to Mexico to visit an old friend, and it's like Casablanca in the West. And that type of twist is what the Wild Wild West also did so well. They made the current spy trend, which is when it came out, into something that was completely different. And Miguelito Loveless is one of the greatest Bond villains, without being in a Bond film, of all time. 
Exactly. I remember it was 78 or 79 when one of the two movies came out and Paul Williams took over the role as Loveless's son. And I remember that was one of those things I was excited to see because that TV movie took the Bondian part of the show even to a grander spectacle than the show itself. But I get up on Saturday mornings and I literally go through the entire day's show, starting with track down all the way up through Wild Wild West, which was 4 p.m. locally here. And as soon as I saw that there was a Loveless episode, I was like, okay, I know exactly what I'm doing at four o'clock today. <laughs> The other thing with Wild Wild West is it wasn't just James Bond on horseback. That would have been mildly interesting. But the fact it was steampunk before steampunk was even a thing is what really sets that show ahead of its time. And I don't even know if they really realized they were doing that or just grew organically as the show did. I haven't done a lot of research, but I'm right there with you. I appreciate the sense that these guys were making it up as they went along. If the mandate from the network is to give me James Bond on horseback, what is James Bond? He's the ladies' man, and he is the gadget guy. And for me, Artemis Gordon was, in some ways, the more fun version to watch because I always enjoy disguises. I always enjoy tricks up their sleeve. And even he was the one who would say, hey, Jim, I've got this new thing. Even nowadays, my mom and I will still chuckle at actor Robert Conrad's pants, as nice as they are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> always slick, always a little bit to the high waist, but he exuded a suave charm that was just perfect for its time. And it influenced so many other shows. Even William Shatner played an Artemis Gordon-type character in Barbary Coast a number of years later with all the disguises. Artemis Gordon was more than just a Watson. He was a real participant in the series. Agreed. In fact, when I invented my main character, Calvin Carter, I've basically combined Artemis Gordon and Jim West into a single person. Makes sense to me. And there was a stretch there. I think it was in season four when he had a heart attack. He was off the show for a bit. And as I just said a few minutes ago, oh, it's a Loveless episode. So let's definitely watch that. When the TV schedule comes up and it's not an Artemis show, you're like, oh, okay, I'll still watch, I suppose. But there's a letdown. Which is why I was so glad that he came back for the two movies. We know Western TV influenced you. What Western writers influenced you? When did you start reading Westerns? So I am a latecomer to the reading of the Western. My grandfather, my dad's dad, he was a carpenter his entire life. And his bookshelves in Tyler, Texas were filled with paperback Westerns. This would be from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, just filled with Westerns. And back in the 70s, I'm a comic book guy. I'm Batman, a Superman. I'm not going to give any time to a bunch of things that happened in the Old West. But maybe 15 years ago, we had to clean out some land we owned out in LaGrange, Texas. And what happened was I inherited the box of Western novels. My dad took the Louis L'Amours, which I think my grandfather had every single one, as I think every man of his generation had every single Louis L'Amour book on bookshelves. I've been to more than one estate sale, and you go into the man's study, and there is the one shelf full of the Bantam Louis L'Amour books with the black cover and the yellow text. So I inherited this box of non-Louis L'Amour Westerns, and I began to look through them. And I recognized some from back in the day. In fact, the cover for Silver City Rangers by Burt Arthur, it's got this nighttime shot with the cowboy and the horse rearing up. I recognized that from back in the day. So I just began to look through and read these stories. And one of the first ones that I came around to was William Colt McDonald's Gregory Quist stories, which was a railroad detective. And that also played a role in me inventing Calvin Carter. 
Now, as time has gone on for this past 15 or so years, I have expanded the authors that I read. Peter Brandvold, you mentioned a few minutes ago, I have read some of his long-arm novels. But of all the modern authors that I have been reading, it's going to be James Reisner as my go-to guy. I think he is one of the best living novelist storytellers we have in any genre. I believe his, gosh, I think he's up to nearly 365 novels in his 40-plus year career. So as I sometimes like to joke to my wife, you could read a James Reasoner novel every day of a year and read a different one. He did, I think, 20, 30, something like that, long-arm westerns. I appreciated how he was able to expand and tell a story within a a common basic framework, because long-arm novels are basically the same. He gets assigned a case, and he goes and takes care of the case, and so it has a common outline, but he will expand and tell it in his own unique way. I've read more than one author do a long-arm novel, and frankly, I tend to gravitate towards Reasoner's books. Deathhead Crossing is another of the Reasoner books I have read. I read them first because I just love James Reasoner's writing. And then I go back and I study what he did. How did he do it? How did he take me so effortlessly from page one to the end? I constantly learn as I continue my writing career. And Reasoner is like a master teacher. Were you encouraged to read and write when you were in school? Absolutely. My parents are avid readers. And back in the day, we would go to a mall. We have Westwood Mall in Houston. There was a B. Dalton on one end and there's a Walden book on another end. What? Is this science fiction? Two bookstores in a mall? I know. (laughs) And depending on what I was after, I would have to go to one or the other. So if I was looking for the latest Starlog with the latest article about Star Wars, I would go to the first one. And if they didn't have it, I would speed walk down to the other one so that no one would buy it from me. But every time we would go to the bookstore, we would split off into our three respective spots. My dad would go Westerns, but he would also do sci-fi. I'd do sci-fi and I did young adult. It wasn't called young adult yet, but it was like the three investigators and the Hardy Boys. And my mom would do her thing too. And I would always find a book. And then I would always sidle up to one of the two parents and ask the magical question, did you find something? With the understanding (laughs) that, well, if, if they found something, then that means I could get something. And nine times out of 10, the answer was yes. And so I read constantly. After I discovered Lord of the Rings in middle school, I then began to craft my stories. Part of it was Star Wars, part of it was Lord of the Rings. And so, yes, I began to write at a early age, middle school into high school. And that's where so many of us, myself included, came from. That fan base working what would today be called fanfic. I wrote Man From U.N.C.L.E. stories, not for publication, but for my own amusement. I wanted more Man From U.N.C.L.E. stories than I could get on television. You're talking about the same kind of thing that I see over and over again. I wrote Star Wars stories. I wrote Lord of the Rings stories. I combined the two. I think that's the way we nurture those early seeds of wanting to tell stories, is telling somebody else's stories, but through our own eyes and experiences. And then we learn how to tell our own stories. Exactly. I totally agree. One of my favorite writing stories is back in 1998, there was a contest for the band Chicago. It's one of my favorite bands of all time. The contest was write a story of any kind using as many song titles as you could. I won second place and I have the autographed picture on my wall because I just do this all the time. And with my son, my son is now 20, but we have a running commentary with some of the characters we invented when he was younger. We just basically have our stuffed animal characters and Lego characters that they became real life. So we literally take a walk every day and we tell the next story of these characters that we've come to know and love. 
Did you take any courses or join a writing group at the beginning of your writing career? Around 2000, 2001 or so, I took a writing course here in Houston, and then I did find a writing group right south of Houston in Sugarland, Texas. It was helpful because you had peer reviews, but so many of the people in that group were not out to publish books. And this is before the ebook revolution of, what, I think 2007 with the Kindle. But the, the biggest influence for me actually was a friend of mine whose name is Doug, and he and I worked together. We're both sci-fi geeks. We talked about movies and comics and all that kind of stuff. And there was one day in the summer of 2005 when he walked down to my office and he asked, what is to this day the most fateful question of my writing career, which is, hey, I'm writing a book. Would you mind reading some chapters to let me know what you think about it? And my response was, yes, if you'll read mine. That meant I actually had to start writing a book. So from July 27th, 2005 to June 1st, 2006, Yes, I have the dates memorized. I wrote my first novel. It was a historical featuring Harry Truman, a what-if kind of story, but still holds true to the historical nature of Truman himself. But every Wednesday, Doug and I would meet and we would pass over to each other newly fresh written chapters and then the markups from the previous week. And that accountability on a weekly basis was what really helped drive my writing career to kickstart it and just keep it going because you didn't want to be the one who didn't bring new work. Were there any other lessons that you learned from writing the first novel? Yes, and it segued into having not written the second. So I have a master's in history, so I did write a thesis back in my graduate school days. So when it came time to write that first book, I treated it like I did my thesis. So I had note cards, and I had a whole comp book that I actually still have that it's the process of writing the story. And I would actually write in the comp book like a journal. If you read this comp book, it is the journal of me learning how to write a novel. But I used to joke that it took me longer to not write the second book than it did for me to write the first. Because stupid me, I said, oh, I did it one way when I wrote the book and it was successful. Let's try something different. So I spent the next Uh. seven years not writing the second book. Let me short circuit myself. Yes. So what happened when I finally got around to finishing a second manuscript, it took me less time to write the second one than it did take me to write the first one. So one of the key factors I have learned in my writing career on book number one, plus all the ones I've written since, is yes, each book can be different. But Scott, you have a certain way of writing and you have to abide by it. It can sway in the street, but there are guardrails that you personally have set up. If you go past the guardrails, you will crash because you already have. I used to really beat myself up. I would hit New Year's Day and I'd say, my gosh, why didn't you write the book you said you were going to write last New Year's Day? And then around 2015, I said, you know what? I am who I am. You're going to write how you're going to write. So let's just do it. The funny thing is that Calvin Carter novels, I did write with just the barest of outlines and no note cards. And I blazed through all of those books really fast. Those are fun days because I would find these maps of Waco in 1885 or Houston in 1885, and I would literally print them out and paste them on my wall. So when they would leave a saloon that I would discover on the map, they'd say, and he would turn left and it would be 100 feet until the next intersection. I knew exactly it was 100 feet because the map said so. It was one of the best resources I have found online. All right, let's talk Calvin Carter Railroad Detective. Those are your latest three Westerns. Yes. Where did that character come from? 
Calvin Carter came from a combination of Artemis Gordon and Jim West from the Wild Wild West, a little bit of the suave of Maverick. And the third person I always name drop is Briscoe County Jr. That was a one-season show from 1993. As much as I enjoy and appreciate a traditional Western, I seem to always just gravitate to those ones that are just slightly off kilter, whether it's Maverick or Wild Wild West or Briscoe County Jr. So throw in the Gregory Quist that I discovered that there was a thing called the Railroad Detective. It was all just a mishmash. And he came out as this former actor who turns into a railroad detective because he hunts down and finds the man responsible for killing his father. Now, that was an initial short story that my friend David Cranmer published on his Beat to a Pulp website back in, gosh, it was like 2009, 2010, something like that. It was my first published Calvin Carter story. Over time, he has become a little lighter. He's not as dark as those first couple of stories, only because I like the comedic aspect of the shows we've been mentioning. I like Maverick being the little more lighthearted person. That's just how I gravitate towards. So that's how Calvin Carter came to be. He is a former actor turned railroad detective, and he loves to dress up in costume, if at all possible. In fact, he has a partner whose name is Thomas Jackson. He is your traditional cowboy partner. He is straight-laced. He came from a ranch. And so the two of them actually play off each other. Basically, Carter likes to solve the cases with a little bit of flair, whereas Thomas Jackson would just rather punch the guy in the face and haul him to jail. You are going in an interesting different direction for the next story. You've teamed up with your buddy David Cranmer on a project. Tell me about that. Yeah, so David and I both emerged at the same time, about 12, 15 years ago. And right off the bat, one of the characters that David created was Cash Laramie, along with his partner, Gideon Miles. Now, Cash is based off the Sergio Leone character, and he's got a social conscience. So he's always going to do the right thing, even if it doesn't make him feel good. And Gideon Miles, his partner, is actually based off Bass Reeves from back in the day. The black deputy sheriff. Yes, that's correct. So David began to write the Cash and Miles stories around the same time that I began to write the Calvin Carter stories. Like I said, David was the first person to publish a story of mine. So quickly out of the gate, we began to communicate. We were blog commenters on many of the same blogs, like James Reasoner's blog. After we both had some stories under our belt, David suggested, hey, why don't we team up these three characters and put them in a common adventure? And I said, that's fantastic. And we came up with the idea of the Sundown Express, which is a super fast train that gets hijacked. But the Carter on board and Cash and Miles, they've got to get on and retake the train. It was a fun story that, like I said, we began to write this thing about 11 years ago. And we both got to the point that it was like life got in the way, other stories got in the way. And so we shelved it. Then we would pick it back up again, and then we would shelve it again. We just sat there as that wishful thing that we're going to get to one day. Then in the fall of 2020, David emails me and said, hey, let's have a look and let's get this thing published in 2021. So I did, and we've been back and forth, and we're really hoping to publish this thing in October of 2021. David publishes his Cash Laramie stories under the pseudonym Edward Granger. That is correct. That is the name you will see on the cover. It'll be Edward A. Granger and then my full three names, Scott Dennis Parker. You have this new book coming out, The Sundown Express, with a series character that you're writing with another successful author. What is the most difficult thing in today's publishing, Mark, to make that book a hit? It will be challenging because the answer to your question, the most difficult thing in the current 2021 climate of publishing, is discoverability. 
I am convinced that anyone who has a hankering for a great Western story, who picks up Sundown Express or any of David's stories or any of my stories, they're going to have a good time. The problem and the biggest challenge is to get the books in front of people, computer screens, eyeballs in a bookstore. That is the hardest thing to do because I am an independent author. I know the ins and outs of how to physically prepare a book for Amazon, how to distribute it draft to digital, and how to make it available for people. The challenge is to let people know it's there, to let people discover this book. It's really darn fun. It's all about how do you influence social media to make something pop. One of the things I like to recommend to independent authors is every year there's a conference in Las Vegas called 20 Books Vegas. It's an amazing conference that really isn't about writing. It's all about marketing. There are 2,000 independent authors there, and the zeitgeist and the atmosphere and the encouragement is a wonderful way to learn how to do the thing that you're talking about, how to get discoverability as an independent author. So anybody out there, look up 20 Books Vegas on the internet. I can't recommend 20 Books Vegas highly enough. Like many independent authors, the pressure of having a full-time career while pursuing your love of writing between the responsibilities of work and family, what makes that effort worthwhile to you? There's a hashtag that goes around sometimes called the 5 a.m. writing club. I'm in that club. That is me. And I am time-locked with how much time I can spend each day. And there's nothing better as a writer to be crafting a story that literally will make your heart pound, that will bring tears to your eyes, and your images in your head are so fast your fingers can't keep up without misspelling. I find the thrill of writing to be probably the best part of the whole writing challenge. The end part is also good. I celebrate each the end, whether it is a bottle of champagne or a martini. I celebrate every the end because I will print it, look at it, and celebrate it. But to wake up every morning at five can be difficult, but your time limited. When my alarm goes off that says, you got to stop writing because you got to get ready for work, I can't just spend the next 30 minutes writing. I got to stop. More often than not, I have stopped when a guy comes in with a gun or one character reveal is a big truth and you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to get back to that. So being the first reader of a book I'm writing is really exciting. And that is what keeps me going. I think you have to enjoy the process of actually putting words on paper and telling stories, whether or not they get published. That's an end result you're moving towards. But if you don't enjoy the process along the way, what's really the point? In fact, for most of us, that is the point. It is enjoying the process along the way, and everything beyond that is a bonus. It is. And the phrase I always go back to is control the controllables. I can control the process. I can control the physical typing. I can control the editing. As soon as I push publish, it's all out of my control. I can do nothing about it. Whether or not people dislike it or they love it, out of my control. So it's best to not get wrapped up in a negative review. It's also best not to get too high flying. If one comes through, that's good. Control the controllables, and I can control the process. And the process does bring me joy. Excellent advice. Is there a book you have that's gnawing away at you that you want to write sometime in the future that you don't have time to write now? It's not the right time to write it, but it's there when you want to get to it or when you have ability to get to it. There is a current work in progress that involves a, a contemporary setting I'm hoping to publish in 2022. 
But there was a story I had written for one of James Reasoner's anthologies involved steam-powered robots at the beginning of World War II. James accepted the story. I'm very thankful for that. And I had emailed him one day and I said, hey, do you think this idea of steam-powered robots that look like humans, but there are certain factors that would reveal the fact that they really are robots and steam-powered automatons, you think that would make a good book? And his response is, Scott, that would make a good series. Absolutely. I'd read that. Because the one short story was sad because the one android was a trumpet player and his robot friend said, look, even though you don't have to take a breath to play your trumpet, you need to look like you do. And he didn't. At one point, the music just swept him away. And as a result, there was a riot in the town that he was playing. And this was interesting. The story takes place in 1938, right before the war started. So what would World War II be like with steam-powered automaton robots? Which then you can extrapolate backwards to World War One and into the Old West and in the future, that whole concept. That's fascinating. As I said, I would read that, and I really do hope you take the time to configure all the ins and outs on the page. It'll be fun to try. Scott, thanks for being with me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to hang out. Good luck with uh, Sundown Express and all of your other projects. Thank you very much for having It has been an honor to be on the show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and hold on tight to the reins. Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride.